This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast, everyone. I'm so glad that you're joining me today. I am your host, Erica, and today my guest is Sharon Hottie Miller. She is the author of a new book called Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked and How God Calls Us to More. She's also a church planner with her husband in Durham, North Carolina, and she has a PhD at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which means that that her book and the book before that she wrote are both just packed full of wisdom and just everything is so grounded and well-written. And um, I just, I really enjoyed it. In today's conversation, we talk about how to approach divisive or controversial issues as Christians in today's society by keep being focused on scripture and an eye on Jesus and everything we do. I asked Sharon about her thoughts on the political infighting we've seen in the Christian community in the past couple of years and how she's found her voice to speak out about things that can be a little scary and why more Christians should consider doing so. We also talk about some of the boundaries and the thought processes that might go with that because I know there's just a lot to consider as we're all sort of, you know, barraged with the news and just so many different points of views, like where do we land? How do we seek out the right place? And when is the right time to speak out? And so I think you're going to learn a lot from what she has to say about all of that today. Um, If you've ever sought guidance in the area of faith, politics, and how we participate in culture responsibly, respectfully, maintaining our integrity, uh, you're going to love this episode. Sharon has some great insight for you. So enjoy this conversation with Sharon. Sharon, welcome to the podcast this morning. It's Friday. What does a Friday look like for you? What are you up to today? Well, today is a little bit crazy because our power is out and because we just had a bunch of storms come through and they canceled my my oldest son's school and then they canceled my preschooler school. And so we are a little bit crazy <laughs> today. I'm in I'm in a season of life where my my life revolves around whether or not I have childcare. And so we've just been scrambling a little bit today. But normally Friday mornings I have a little bit of extra free time. Uh, my youngest usually goes off with a sitter and the other two are in school and then I'm preaching on Sunday. And so I was just running through my, my sermon for Sunday. So So that's Friday for me. My oldest is seven. My middle is about to turn five in, I guess, next weekend. And then my youngest just okay, turned so yeah, two. I'm, I'm in the same exact stage of life. Childcare is essential to getting anything done. And uh, I just dropped my daughter off at the YMCA for childcare. So that is my life-saving hack <laughs> right now. Yep. It's yep. so great. Oh, I use them all the time. So that's so, uh-huh. so that's how I am here at uh-huh. my house alone right now, which is wonderful. Um, but okay, well, so let's mm-hmm. get into your background a little bit. You're a writer, a speaker, you're a pastor's wife. You guys planted a church recently in mm-hmm. North Carolina. Uh, you also have your PhD from mm-hmm. Trinity Evangelical Divinity mm-hmm. School. That's a, that's a big word, <laughs> a big name yes. there. Uh, yeah, and you study uh-huh. women and their gifts and callings in life. Um, I'm curious what okay. you studied in undergrad and what sort of gave you the motivation to make a huge step to get a PhD in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that. <laughs> so uh, that's fun to answer. I majored in religion and minored in English. And so I love literature and and reading and writing. And so I kind of squeezed that in. But religion was where I really fell in love with studying the Bible. And I really loved, I I went to Duke undergrad. And so I think my parents were kind of like, so we're spending all this money and you're going to get a major in religion. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Like, how are you, what are you going to do with that? But that's where I really first discovered how much I enjoyed studying the Bible. And I also took Greek in undergrad and really loved it. So I did that. And then when I was in my senior year, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I wasn't really sure. 
And through just a series of random events, I ended up getting an internship with Proverbs 31 Ministries. And are you familiar at all with them? Most Mm -hmm. people have heard of Lisa Turkers. So back then, it was a tiny little ministry. There was maybe five of us. And now it's it's huge. They I don't know how many employees they have, but it was just a tiny little operation. And I was the intern and I traveled with Lisa and I made copies in the office and responded to emails. And that was kind of what I did. But it was really wonderful because I learned a lot about speaking and writing and traveling from just that year that I spent there. And a lot of the stuff I learned then, I still kind of practice now or implement now. It was really helpful. And I think one of the things that I did learn that was really helpful is how not glamorous traveling is. (laughs) We had just these crazy stories and situations and things going wrong. And so it gave me a very realistic picture of just what it's like to travel for your job, to travel and speak. So I did that. But the other thing that I learned during that time that was really helpful is that I was just different from Lisa. Her gift in a lot of ways is storytelling. She's just the most gifted storyteller. And she, back then, a big part of her platform was her story. She survived a lot in childhood and that affected some decisions she made as an adult. And so she would share that story and it was really powerful and really cathartic and just an amazing ministry was being birthed out of that. But I would sit there and and watch all this and I did not have an interesting story. I was raised in the church, was just a rule follower, straight and narrow, all of that. And I was looking around at other women at the time as well and noticing like with Beth Moore, it was really similar that early on her story was a big part of her platform. That just seemed to be kind of the thing for women at the time because women weren't really going to seminary. They weren't pastors. And so their authority came from their story. And because I didn't have a story, I was kind of like, okay, well now what? Like, what do I do? Where, you know, how do I build a ministry? And I thought about it and thought about it. And then I realized, well, men don't have to have a story to go into ministry. They Mm -hmm. just go to seminary. (laughs) Like if they feel called to ministry, they just get training. And so I decided, well, that's what I'm going to do. And so at the end of my time at Proverbs 31, I went back to school and got my MDiv. And so that was kind of the catalyst for that. And then finished my MDiv, went back into ministry, did that for a number of years, got married And then during that season, early in our marriage, my husband wanted to get his PhD. And so we'd started looking at schools. And during that process, one of the schools he interviewed at was Trinity. And while we were there visiting the school, it's another like weird series of events. I have a a lot of stories like that, actually. Um, They basically recruited both of us together. And they said, we will help you financially, but we really want you both here. In our that's a sign. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's a huge sign. It, it It's really unusual for a husband and wife to be able to work on their PhDs together at the same school and for it to be financially mm-hmm. possible. And so it just seemed like a very clear open door from God. And so that was how I ended up getting my PhD. But I never had any aspirations of using that to then become a professor. Like my heart has always been for the church and really the same for my husband. I think we just don't really fit in academia. We just really love the church. And so we felt like for both of us, we wanted to use our PhDs just to build up the church. And so that's, that's the whole, that's the short version of how that, all those twists and Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's like you guys have now planted a church. So I'm sure there's not a ton of church planters Mm -hmm. necessarily that have that kind of background. So it probably really contributes to a unique atmosphere and what you guys offer and just the way you think about things. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, yeah, I think that's really cool. Now, one of the things, you know, as I was researching some of your writing, you talk about a couple times um, not necessarily being a kid person and that you didn't love to babysit, uh, <laughs> not necessarily called to motherhood, uh-huh. which I totally related to the not liking uh-huh. to babysit thing and uh-huh. not really being a huge uh, fan uh-huh. of other people's kids, <laughs> even though I love my own. Um, it's just <laughs> not quite the same. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that we've heard heard about in the church sometimes is that they make the church makes marriage and motherhood sort of a god of sorts and you know kind of promotes it to Mm -hmm. maybe a place that is a little bit too high and lofty because not everybody is going to go that direction Mm -hmm. do you see that happening and have you seen Mm -hmm. it maybe being corrected at all recently yeah I mean I definitely I I felt that and that that was one of the reasons why I felt some confusion in discerning my call because for women, there just aren't a lot of options. But one of the big options, if you're a woman who feels called to ministry, is is children's ministry, uh, children's ministry and women's ministry. And so that narrowed it down for me very quickly <laughs> that it was going to be women's ministry for me at the time I was at a Southern Baptist church. And so that was, those were really the only two options was children's ministry or women's ministry. And I, I think a lot of women feel that same, that same tension where they think the options are either children's ministry or women's ministry. The problem is for some women who don't feel called to women's ministry either. (laughs) And so that's a really, that, that puts them in a really tough spot and for my doctoral research, I inter I interviewed women who were in seminary and were they felt called to ministry, and so they were honoring that call by getting training. But they the women I interviewed tended to be at more conservative evangelical seminaries, and so their future was definitely a huge question mark. Where they they were trying to be faithful to where they felt God leading them, but they also had no idea what that would actually look like for them in view of their mm-hmm. options. Now, I do think I I do think it's changing in, in a relatively short period of time. I mean, if you're in a Southern Baptist tradition, the options are somewhat the same, but in more non-denominational settings, I see I see more options opening up. And one thing that really has surprised me in with us in our church and me having a pastoral title is early on when we were recruiting for the church and and praying over the church and trying to figure out what our roles would be, it was really surprisingly important to my husband that I have a pastoral title at our church. And I was very open-handed about it, mostly because our kids are so little. And we have a lot going on (laughs) between our kids and me writing and speaking and traveling and you know, our kids are a top priority and I don't ever want to be taken away from them because we just have so much going on. And so that, that weighed heavily on me and a pastor title has a lot of expectations with it. And I just didn't know if I could measure up to those, but my husband said, you know, we live in an area, we're in the research triangle, Raleigh, Durham, where we are one of the most highly educated areas in the country. Women here are CEOs and they are lawyers and doctors and professors and VPs and they're leading in their workplace, but the church isn't necessarily modeling what it means to be a woman leader. And so he said, it's really important for you to be leading, to have a a visible role of leadership in our church. And so what we decided on was to have a I would be a teaching pastor, which felt like it had a lot of boundaries on it in terms of what that pastoral title meant. And so as we were recruiting for our church and telling people what I would be doing, when we got to the part where we would share that, I always kind of braced, like I just, because we're in the South and I just didn't know how people would respond to me preaching on Sundays. And we were stunned at how everyone was excited about it and just overjoyed. One man, when my husband went with him, one man wept 
like he was so happy to hear that our church was doing this. And so it was very clear that the Holy Spirit had gone before us and kind of prepared the way. And so we actually didn't face any pushback at all, which was just, I mean, we're in the Bible. Belt. <laughs> like that's just really surprising. Um, but what, what it showed me is I think that this is something that, that is shifting. And even since me taking this position, I've had a couple other friends who are launching churches around the same time, and they are also taking pastoral titles or leadership positions. And so I see, I see change happening, which is encouraging, you know, even in more conservative traditions where women cannot be pastors, I see this growing appreciation for the voices of women. And so I'm really hopeful and encouraged about what possibilities will be available to women. Yeah. So I, I said this the other day that I, Grew up in churches where that wasn't really, like, I never thought about whether or not women could be pastors. Like, when I was younger, <clears throat> when I was younger, we uh-huh. had a male pastor at a smaller church, but I never, I don't know if we could or couldn't. And then as I got older, I definitely went to more, um, t- to churches that, you know, do believe women can lead, it's preach and lead. Uh-huh. Um, but when you're, uh-huh. I mean, but there are definitely people out there, you know, that you probably know and respect that don't necessarily agree with you Mm -hmm. on that issue. How do you kind of navigate Mm -hmm. that in conversations Mm -hmm. and just thinking about it when you think that they might be wrong or, you know, but still respecting what they Mm -hmm. have to say? Yeah. Yeah. So I spent about seven years really involved at a church in the area called the Summit Church. And the pastor there is J.D. Greer, who is currently president of Mm -hmm. the Southern Baptist Convention. And I had a really wonderful experience there and loved my time there. And we consider JD a really good friend. He actually officiated our wedding and my husband worked for him for a number of years. And so, and he continues to be a really good friend. And then we also have other great friends there that we love and that we respect. And so for us, where we landed, and and this is something that we say to everyone is that this is an an issue on which Christians who uphold the authority of Scripture in good conscience and good faith, uh, who have a rigorous you know adherence to Scripture, come down differently. And that was something that we even experienced when we were at Trinity. And I think that was really eye opening for me personally. Is at Trinity in the New Testament department and really across the board of the seminary, the faculty was split on this issue. You had New Testament professors who on biblical grounds believed women could not be pastors. And then you had New New Testament professors who on biblical grounds believed women could be pastors. And they could still be together, could still be unified. And I thought that was a really powerful witness of of unity. And it's one that my husband and I feel burdened to continue and to be able to say that we can disagree, but still be that it is a non-essential and that we can still be unified in the essentials. And we find that to be especially important right now where our culture is just so divided and just increasingly polarized. And we believe that one of the main tasks of leaders right now is to model how to maintain unity, especially when it's hard. And so this is something that actually is not yeah. hard. <laughs> Um, where we really like our JD, he has a different conviction than us, but we are, we will fight for him. Like we love him and I know he would do the same for us. And that is, I think what we're called to. Yeah. As I love church. that idea of the essentials. That's the most important part. Um, so mm-hmm. you bring mm-hmm. up polarization. So I, you know, I wanted to bring up sort of the past few years which have been pretty, mm-hmm. I think, hard inside the Christian world. Um, and yes. I don't know, mm-hmm. I think social media is a big part of it just because, you know, everyone's opinion is out there and it's just like way more public than it ever was before. But for whatever reason, just mm-hmm. 2016 sort of really divided the Christian community when it comes to the president. And I'm not asking your mm-hmm. opinion on him specifically, but, um, but you mm-hmm. know, looking at, 
what's happened and and sort of how there's a lot of infighting. Mm-hmm. What's been your perspective on that? What what have you kind of thought about all of that infighting and how do you see sort of mm-hmm. I don't know, a pathway towards mm-hmm. coming back together, I guess. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, it, it it's been a painful few years, I think for everyone. And part of what has happened is this division has occurred in our country and the fractures of it have run straight through the church and have run straight through families and straight through denominations. You know, we haven't risen above it in any way at all. And so I think that has just affected everyone. Like no matter what side you're on, it's just painful. Like I, I just had a hard conversation with a family member just a couple days ago where we did not see eye to eye and it was just really hard to communicate. And so I think we're all feeling, feeling this division from a ministry perspective. It's been really eye opening in terms of, I think it has revealed the true state of the church in a lot of ways, like where we ultimately put our trust. You can see with the elevated tones, um, the, uh, yeah, just the, the rhetoric, the extreme rhetoric, the name calling, the mudslinging, um, really coming from both sides. Uh, you see, logic that is being put into place to justify political conclusions that is theologically problematic. Um, I think I see a lot of ends justify the means logic, lesser of two evils logic, which is historically outside of Christian teaching. Um, Like it's theologically uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. shaky. Um, And so seeing all of that, come out because of this election for me has caused me actually to engage in a lot of soul searching of asking, okay, you know, I thought I was discipling people into this radical, you know, other, you know, worldly, um, alternative kingdom way of Jesus. And yet, we look just like the world, you know, the church is not distinguishable from the world in any way. Like all the, these fractures that run through our country are running straight through the church as well. And people who say they are this are then getting online and just flapping their mouths and saying horrible things. You know, they're, they're leveraging all their credibility, which they should be using to point to Jesus to, um, either point to a leader or to just tear people down. But whatever it is, there was revealed this massive failure of spiritual formation Mm -hmm. in the church. And so that has been extremely sobering to me and really something I've had to grieve as well, because I know a lot of people that are looking at the church now and saying, looking at Christians and saying, you are not who you say you are and don't want to come to church and feel just disillusioned with Christians. And I really grieve for that. But I also see it as an opportunity to assess, okay, what were we doing that was clearly not forming people <laughs> um, the, into the way of Christ? And what do we need to change so that we are forming people into Yeah, and I think, Christ? I mean, just, sorry, there's a siren going by all week. I don't know if you can hear that. I live by a fire station. Um, I was going to say, so yeah. I think some of this kind of probably has played into your newest book, which is called Nice, Why We Love to Be Liked, How God Calls Us to More. And, um, mm-hmm. I, you know, before we talk about the book specifically, you know, some of these things have kind of, you wrote, write about how you've been sort of pushed out of your comfort zone to write about issues that, you know, were a little controversial. Yes. And I was looking back at your kind of roster of mm-hmm. writing. You've written about gun control, body image, sexism, unplanned pregnancy. You wrote about the Billy Graham mm-hmm. rule, things like that. Um, so talk to me mm-hmm. about how you started to overcome some of those fears because it is scary putting something out there. I've done, you know, I do op-ed writing. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, you're just kind of waiting for the 
no. you know, somebody to come back on Twitter and say something mean and hateful. So talk to me about yeah. how you overcame that fear. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I was just talking to a friend of mine who's also, she's a really well-known author, and she's taken a lot of hits because of her advocacy for refugees. And we were talking recently, and she... uh, she said, you know, how do you, how do you keep going? Like, how do you keep, you know, banging the drum, you know, when people are criticizing you, like, how do you stay true to kind of your, your moral compass and all that? And I I thought for a second and because it is scary, like when you take a stand that, you know, some people are not going to like, and I thought for a second and I said, you know, it's, it's really simple. I believe the word of God and that's it. That's why. And there have been moments and there's one that I, I think I write about in nice that I know I wrote about in my first book, free of me, where I had this moment where I felt like God was prompting me to write about something that was happening in the culture at the time. And it was related to racism. And I, wrote up this, this blog post, but then I was really nervous to publish on it because I thought, you know, what are people going to think? Are they going to think I'm being political? Are they going to think I'm being controversial? Are they going to think I'm distracting from the gospel? And then I just had to stop myself and say, no, like (laughs) Jesus is not neutral on this. You know, this is, this is not a biblically neutral topic. And whatever Jesus talks about, I must talk about if I can, if I call myself his follower, his disciple. And for me, it's really as simple as that. And I I think we live in this time where we have wrapped red tape around certain issues and labeled them as political. And when we do that, we we basically say we can't talk about that because that's it's political, it's controversial, it's distracting. And this to me seems like such a sneaky trick of the devil to keep us silent on issues on which Jesus himself was not silent. And we cannot let that stand. We cannot let our culture, you know, our, our cultural divisions, whatever it is, we cannot let those things dictate what we will or will not talk about if Jesus himself talks about it. And so that's what it came down to. But at the same time, recognizing this reluctance in me to talk about things that Jesus talked about and almost a cowardice in me because I didn't want to say something that would be unpopular or that people wouldn't like me for. And then having to decide who do I ultimately answer to, you know, these people who are applying standards that are not Jesus's standards, or am I answering to Jesus? And I couldn't go to bed at night or look myself in the mirror if I caved to my own cowardice. And so on that kind of same issue or like just controversial issues in general, um, I think a lot of people feel sort of, like they don't know enough to speak out sometimes, you know what I mean? And they're worried that mm-hmm, they're going to mm-hmm. sound ignorant or they're missing something. Um, but then they don't want to be silent because it's something they do feel is right. Um, how do you think 
or, or what would you say about drawing boundaries or finding the right boundaries for what we do and don't speak out about um, and, mm-hmm. and doing that mm-hmm. in, in a way that's wise instead of just like, you know, word vomit on a mm-hmm. Facebook post? <laughs> yeah, that's that's such a great question because it's so easy to get wrapped up in social media and get really emotional and to just vent. And I think it's important to ask the question is this going mm-hmm. to be helpful? Like, is this going to actually change people's minds? Uh, the way that I'm saying it and the tone that I'm saying it, is this actually going to be teaching anyone anything? And that that question has guided me a lot because there's been times where I've wanted to say something but realize this will come off simply as angry, this will offend people um, unnecessarily. Uh and it won't, it won't change any minds. And so for me, the question has always been, if I feel that a conviction about something where there's a blind spot in the church, what actually needs to happen in order to address this blind spot? And very often, just ranting on Facebook is not the answer mm-hmm. to that question. <laughs> um, it's a much slower work of listening and being humble and empathizing with people and trying to understand and being content to get people to just one, one next step. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you're going to change their whole mind tomorrow, but what is one step in the right direction that we can take together? Um, but I, I really think too, that humility piece is huge because if you're coming at people in self-righteousness, even if you really believe like I'm right and you're wrong, but you're coming at it from a high horse, just know that (laughs) doesn't work. (laughs) It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. And in general, really anytime you enlist scripture with an agenda to kind of come at a person that doesn't tend to work either. And that's just the beauty of the Holy Spirit and its freedom is that it tends to, if you're just faithful to all of scripture and you are sharing from a place of humility is that instead of like targeting people, the Holy Spirit has a way of penetrating defensive walls that you coming straight at it just will never, ever accomplish. And so that, I think that's a really important consideration and something that is mostly lost in all of the Facebook debates. Like, I, I just don't think people's minds are changed no. by Facebook, you know. No, and I, I think sometimes I like to think of it like something that you learn in marriage counseling is like, uh, you know, kind of repeat back what someone says, make sure they know that you hear them. And and to do that yeah, with someone that's yeah. on an opposing side of a conversation to make sure that mm-hmm. they feel mm-hmm. heard and that you're understanding why they believe that, but then saying, and but here's what, you mm-hmm. know, on top of that, here's why I think what I think. And so, yeah, listening, humility, I think that's, that's definitely huge. And uh, something uh-huh. that you recently tweeted, um, that's not necessarily about p- the political scene, but I think could relate to it, is you wrote, um, if we had half the rage about corruption and hypocrisy in our own tradition or theological camp, as we did about others, uh-huh. and then tirelessly addressed it, I think people uh-huh. would start to take us seriously. And I think that uh-huh. is such an important point, just because we're so defensive, you know, about whoever, whatever right. camp that we're in, that sometimes we have a lot of blind spots about like what is going wrong. Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely can relate to that coming mm-hmm. from, um, I used to work on Capitol Hill. I worked for like Republican politicians mm-hmm. and I like sort of lived and mm-hmm. breathed the whole thing. And then sort of as I've gotten older and wiser and just really taken a harder look at things, I've been able to see a lot of blind mm-hmm. spots that I had in the past. And I think you're seeing that with a lot of mm-hmm. people. So what kind of prompted you to speak out on that specifically? Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was like a couple weeks ago, <laughs> I think. So many things. Um, yeah, I think I, I don't know if this is it or not, but we just had the Super Bowl. And with the halftime show and I actually missed the halftime show because I think I was putting my kids to bed and so I didn't see it and I didn't (laughs) experience it, but the reaction to it was very, 
yes. polarized, of course, <laughs> like all things. You know, there are some people that said this is a great, you know, representation of, of a particular culture that never, you know, gets that kind of spotlight. And then there were the people that said, no, this is just objectifying mm-hmm. women. And some of the voices, I actually don't think this tweet was about this, but it's still relevant. Like some of the some of the voices that were the most uh, angry about the objectification of women in that halftime show are silent about particular leaders in office who regularly mm-hmm. objectify yeah. <laughs> And I think that that is... I think in that tweet, I also quoted that verse about, you know, Jesus saying, you know, you're pointing out the, the, the splinter in another people's, another person's eye, whereas without addressing the log in your own. And I think that's what happens. And and there's this cognitive dissonance whenever someone does get really upset. And, you know, this is not to pick on conservatives, because I think progressives do exactly the same thing. But in this instance, the the disconnect was watching people who were so mad knowing that they had just been completely silent where this issue was in their own Mm -hmm. camp and the hypocrisy of that. And I think when it comes to being humble, part of what that means is being humble about where you stand, you know, where, where you're standing, like the denomination that you're in or the tradition that you're in or the political affiliation you're in. And if you are not just as, you know, righteously angry about the brokenness in your own house, so to speak, as you are about it in other people's houses, then the, the, the blunt truth is people just Mm -hmm. won't believe you. Because they'll they'll say this seems about like it's about something else because you're not as upset about it in your own house. And so I think that's part of the thing is if we want to have moral credibility in our culture, then we have to be consistent. And if we're not consistent, then people will see through it and they'll just say this isn't really about that. And I, I see that with like something else happened with on a progressive side uh, just this week where a lot of my conservative friends were kind of upset and my progressive friends were defending something that I honestly felt was indefensible. And I just thought, come on guys, like this was an opportunity for you to in humility admit like this was not okay and this was wrong. And the fact that you're not willing to admit that seems like it seems hypocritical again. (laughs) And so I I think if you want to be believed, and that's the short of it, if you want to be believed, you have to be consistent. You have to be coherent. And if you're not, then then people just aren't going to take you seriously. And that just is. You can be mad about it. You can dislike it. But people will not listen to you. I know. Moral credibility. That's such a great phrase to remember for everyone. Because this is going to, oh, I don't know. This is going to come back and hit the Republican Party a lot in the future. And mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so the other thing I, w- I wanted to ask you about, um, oh yeah, you you wrote about in Nice, you wrote about, you said Jesus wasn't nice. And so I guess the quick question would be like, mm-hmm. A, I know I read the book, but for listeners, you know, how do you define nice? And then B, um, wh- why would you say Jesus isn't nice? Yeah, so niceness is really just the appearance of goodness, but not the reality of it. And it's something that a lot of us who are raised in the church are raised into (laughs) or kind of trained into. Like we know all the Sunday school answers. We know how to be good Christians. We know how to put on a certain appearance in front of the right people. But obviously, that is not the same as actual discipleship to Jesus. And that's something that I I wrestled with just with myself in terms of knowing that I had I had this tendency in me to be more concerned about the appearance of goodness than who I actually was deep down. But also, you know, seeing that in the church right now and just seeing how, how many Christians are really good at looking good 
but underneath they are spiritually withering. You know, they're not rooted in, in the vine of Christ. And so that's, that's kind of how I defined it, but it, it was really striking to me how that word nice is nowhere in scripture. And it's not, you know, it's not a fruit of the spirit. Like, yes, we're told to be kind and we're told to be loving and patient, but never nice. And so with Jesus, what we have is he is kind, he is loving, he is, is patient and, and radically so. But he is not just superficially nice to people. You know, he has moments that are decidedly not nice. (laughs) You know, when he calls people broods of vipers and whitewashed tombs and he turns over tables in the temple and he gets exasperated with people a lot. We've been at our church, we've been preaching through the gospel of Mark and I've been surprised and kind of comforted by how often Jesus just gets <laughs> annoyed with the disciples. And, you know, we're, I think we get to see the human aspect of him and it was such a relief because it thinks, okay, like Jesus got annoyed too. You know, he didn't sin out of that annoyance, but he still got annoyed. Yeah. And you can't ever <laughs> imagine Jesus seeing something evil Mm -hmm. or seeing something injustice in front of him and just standing there. He would never do that. Uh (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like he doesn't just kind (laughs) of hover over it just dispassionately. And I, like I'm preaching this Sunday on Mark nine and he has this moment where he's almost like, like how long, (laughs) how long am I going to have to put up with you guys? Like he literally says that. How long do I have to put up with you? And, and the answer is to the death, you know, his, he will go to the cross for them, but at the same time, he, he has those moments. And so he's not just sweet all the time. He's not just superficially nice. He, he never puts on appearance. You're always getting with Jesus exactly what he is feeling. And that it could be annoyance, but there it's always, the core of it is always also love and that is is what we are called to is is true love, true kindness, not mm-hmm. just the appearance of yeah, it. Yeah, that's really good. I think that's such a good point. Okay, so I want to ask you a couple of questions about church stuff because I told you that I have been working on some writing about church planting, and it's become really um, a passion for me in the past couple of years. I had never thought mm-hmm. about it before mm-hmm. until I started going to the current church that I go to, which is very invested in church planting, and I started to realize the importance Mm -hmm. of it. And um, so I'd just love Mm -hmm. to hear what made you guys plant a church in the first place? Uh, What inspired you to do that? And what has that experience been like? Yeah, we never thought we would plant. We kind of swore up and down that we wouldn't. Uh, We had a lot of friends who had planted and we knew how hard it was. And so we kind of thought, that's nice for them, but, you know, not for us. But we also had a very particular image of what church planters were like. We we saw, we kind of thought of a church plant Mm -hmm. like a startup. And so we thought, you know, church planters are entrepreneurial, they're big hype people, that sort of a thing. And that is just not who we are. And so we thought God will just never call us to that. But (laughs) God had the last laugh on that. And uh, a number of years ago, when Ike was actually applying for jobs, we had kind of outgrown his position at our last church and felt like it was time to move on. And so he was applying for jobs. And in the middle of that process, literally, we were interviewing somewhere. And one night in the middle of the night, he couldn't go to sleep, was up for hours, tossing and turning. And he finally got to a point where he said, God, is this you? And if you're trying to tell me something, just tell me. And in that moment, he felt like God said, you are not supposed to be doing this. I want you to plant a church. And he was like, okay, where? And very specifically felt like God said South Point, which is the South Point. And where were you guys living then? Were you there? And we were living, we were living not too far, like 30 minutes from there, kind of in a suburb of the Raleigh-Durham area. And so he, he had that vision and then he just went to sleep, but he thought he wasn't not even you. <laughs> like, he, yeah, he was like, I'm not telling anyone that happened. And I'd actually woken up in the middle. I'd woken up around 2am and he was sitting up in bed <laughs> eating and I was like, are you okay? And he was like, yeah, I'm fine. 
And so I didn't think anything of it, but maybe a week or two later, he finally felt convicted that he should tell me. And I think he thought I would just say, (laughs) oh, we're not doing that. But for me, we are not people who get visions. That's, that's not kind of the norm for us. We don't really throw around the term Mm -hmm. God told us with real casually. And so for him to come to me and say this, this has never happened in our marriage. I took it very seriously and said, okay, well then we need to pray about it and we need to ask God for confirmation. And so that is what we did. And for months, God sent confirmation after confirmation after confirmation and in crazy, weird ways. And finally got to the point where we just said, okay, like if we, if we continue to ask for confirmation, we're just being disobedient because God's been really patient with us. And so we said yes. And we planted with an organization called the ARC Association of Related Churches, which is a really amazing church planting organization. But that was how it all happened. We we really went kind of kicking and screaming and, and God grabbed us by the collar and said, no, actually, you are going to do this. But there's been a lot of comfort in that just because on the hard days where things don't make sense and we don't understand, uh, we can say... Oh, that's okay. Um, sorry, the sun just opened the door. Um, on the hard days, we can say, you know what? This was not our yeah, idea. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we just said yes. So how big we is your church now? Yes. So uh, we're about a year and a half old, and we have two services with an average of about, I don't know, 130, oh, 150, big, yeah. something like that. Um, yeah, it kind of oscillates. We also have a lot of college students, and so it... it sort of depends on if the students are in town or not for holidays. But uh, yeah, we're, we're just growing and um, probably going to outgrow actually the movie theater because of the recliners now. Like a lot of churches are moving towards recliners and full meal services. And because of that, the theaters have significantly mm. less seating. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, that's that's created some interesting conversations. But yeah, it's God has gone before us and it's been hard, but he has provided everything. We so needed. I want to ask you about something related to church, which is, you know, there's been a lot of conversation lately about church hurt, as, as it's put, you know, there's been the sexual mm, scandals mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. churches sometimes getting political. Do you need to talk to him? I'm okay. I'm okay. To go pretty soon. Okay. No, that's okay. I, Sorry. I totally get that. That happens to me all the time. Um, I was just, okay. So the question is to, to shorten it. What do you say to someone who says they mm-hmm. don't feel like they need church to have a relationship with God and why is church important? That, that is a great question and a hard question. And, I have a lot of compassion for anyone who finds themselves in that place because church hurt is a special kind of hurt, especially people who have experienced spiritual abuse. That makes faith really complicated. And even just simple things like going to church or going to a Bible study can trigger shame and fear and just all sorts of things. And so I want to say that there is so much grace for that. But at the same time, to know that from the beginning, God created us to follow him in community. And we see this back in the Old Testament where God, he chooses Abraham, but he chooses a people, like he sets aside a people. And he forms this people, Israel. And even though we remember these these heroes of the faith who followed him and were faithful, but but anyway, uh, yeah, you remember we remember the heroes of the faith. But really, what the story of the Old Testament and the New Testament is of a people that God has called and that they are following God together and they are meant to follow Him, yeah, in a, in community. And so we see that with Israel in the Old Testament, and then we see that with the church in the New Testament, and how so much of the commands that we read as a personal command were actually given as a plural mm-hmm. you. <laughs> Just so much of it is, is is directed towards a people. 
And to say that, yes, there are seasons where we we can grow apart from the context of community and that there is plenty of grace, but the soil that we were created to grow out of and to flourish in is the soil of community. And so to find, just to say then to look mm-hmm. for good soil, yeah, look for good soil where it's a good a church where they're going to be compassionate to your experience, where they aren't compromising on truths of scripture, uh, but that they are patient with you. And there, there are churches out there. I mean, that's something that we feel called to. We have a lot of people at our church who have been wounded and we, we want to be a place of, of grace and safety and patience for them. And so that, oh, that's, I think what that's I would say a great answer. Okay. Question. I'll just do one last um, end of podcast question. Uh, just, do you have any books that you've been reading or podcasts you can recommend? We got to get those from you. Oh yeah. So this cultural moment with uh, Mark Sayers and John Mark Comer is, is like, was a game changer for me in terms of understanding what's happening in our culture right now and what that means for those of us in ministry who want to reach the culture. Oh, I'm reading uh, Mark Sayers other books Um, right now. So I'll have to add that to my list. uh, He is so brilliant. I, I love him. And then uh, books right now, I'm doing The Emotionally Healthy Leader mm-hmm. by Pete Scazzaro. And that has been really helpful for, for me in terms of just doing leadership in a long-term sustainable okay. way. Are you a podcast listener? Yeah. Well, I mean, other than this cultural moment, um, oh, the other one is uh, N.T. Wright. Ask N.T. Wright anything. Oh, no, I haven't. Have you heard that one? Yeah, that one is also fantastic because he is brilliant. Like he's one of the defining theologians Mm -hmm. of our day. He's so well read. People write in with these crazy questions and he answers them without blinking an eye. But he does it with such a pastoral heart. Like he's, he's not just this stuffy academic, but he understands that these are people's lives and he he has this tender pastoral heart. And I think that is so much of what we're called to is that we want to be educated. We want to be well-read. We want to be able to answer people's hard questions, but we don't want to do it from a posture of self-righteousness or, you know, being kind of removed from the emotions and the rawness of people's lived lives. And so he does okay, that. Awesome. Really well. Yeah, I want to check that one out. Okay, Sharon. Well, I'm going to let you go. Uh, get to your busy life. I totally get that. Uh, thank you so much for spending an hour with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was so great. And so that's okay. Sure I have like just... a bunch more questions, but maybe I'll email you. <laughs> All right. Have okay, a good one. Sounds bye. Great. All right. Bye. Well, thanks for joining me today, guys. I'm so glad you got to hear this chat with Sharon. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, please take a moment, go over to iTunes, give me a rating and review. It will only take 30 seconds. It will mean a lot to me. Uh, Thank you so much for listening um, and just cheering me on and sharing these episodes and helping the podcast grow. I'm so glad that you're here. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.